Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. This is one that we've been waiting to do for a long, long time, so I'm excited. Alina, who's with us today? We have Richard Bankalos, who is a historian specialising in the Second World War, more specifically Asia Pacific. He's just released his first volume, The Tower of Skulls, which is obviously the first volume. We're also going to be now waiting for volume two and three, which we're quite excited to be released. Welcome. Hi. Uh, Hello, and thank you for having me. Okay, so we're going to talk Pearl Harbor. But first of all, let's go back a bit further. Can you tell us about the state of the world's major naval forces before the Second World War? Well, that story, you have to go back really to the very end of World War One and up through about 1922. Uh, as the war ended, there was this tremendous uh, naval building rivalry that had commenced between uh, Great Britain, the U.S., and Japan. And uh, the naval building rivalry was, of course, thought to have been a contributing factor to the initiation of World War One. So there was a international conference that was held in Washington, uh, which was signed in 1922, that basically was designed to head off the building rivalry and create a settlement uh, that would settle uh, peace uh, from the Pacific for decades, which in effect it did. Uh, the most important features of the Washington treaties, and there, there were more than one, were first of all, it effectively gave uh, Imperial Japan supremacy in the Western Pacific because it barred the U.S. and the U.K. from establishing naval bases within, at that point, what was deemed to be reasonable range for projecting naval power to the Western Pacific. Uh, It's best known for the fact that it also had one of the treaties limited the size of navies on a ratio of 5-5-3, 5-5 with the U.S. and the U.K., and 3 with Japan. Uh, As that practically worked out, that meant that in the interwar period after a, a drawdown, uh, the U.S. and the U.K. had 15 capital ships. The Jap- Japanese had nine. Then in 1930, the, the, the treaty had uh, covered 10 years. It provided for a building holiday. There'd be no building of any battleships during that period. And in 1930, there was another conference to basically extend uh, the treaty limits for another five years. It was called the London Conference. So uh, those are the... the the two basic things. And then what happened after that was by 1935, when the limitations are going to run out, the Japanese uh, basically uh, left the treaty system uh, and went off on their own to build up their naval power. So why is the Pacific Fleet based at Pearl Harbor and what's the thinking behind that? Well, that's, that's a good question. It's a controversial question. Uh, uh, essentially what 
you really have to spool it back to the, the total strategic picture at that point. Uh, in both London and Washington, uh, by 1940, the uh, supreme uh, threat was identified as Nazi Germany. Uh, Japan was uh, only sort of a lesser threat. Uh, it allied itself with Germany. Uh, ideally, uh, the British and certainly President Roosevelt uh, wanted to get the U.S. into war against Hitler without any diversion of any resources towards the Pacific. The idea was then to deter Japan from uh, any uh, aggressive act that might lead to a war. And as part of that, Roosevelt thought that moving the Pacific fleet from its base, which had been for almost two decades, uh, on the west, U.S. West Coast to Hawaii uh, would help in that uh, deterrent effect. And that's how the Pacific fleet came to be in April Harbor. Now, at the same time, what happens after the Pacific fleet's moved there between uh, April and May of 1940 is that the war heats up in the Atlantic and the U.S. fleet uh, becomes more and more uh, split between forces left in the Pacific and those diverted to the Atlantic so that by Pearl Harbor Day on 7 December 1941, the U.S. fleet is almost evenly divided between the Atlantic and the Pacific, which was partly providing an incentive to Japan to attack because the U.S. fleet was much reduced in strength in the Pacific. Can you tell us a little bit about Yamamoto in charge of the Japanese and when he first gets the idea to attack Pearl Harbor? Uh, Yamamoto is a very interesting uh, figure. He was uh, an extremely bright, uh, deep thinker. Uh, he combined The combined fleet was really the name the Japanese gave to the main battle force of their, their navy. Uh, Yamamoto had uh, become an advocate of air power. Uh, he uh, totally opposed Japan going to war with the U.S., but when the orders came down from his political and uh, naval superiors to uh, Japan was going to war, it was fell upon him to devise a plan. And as I uh, see Yamamoto's thinking was that uh, the Japanese Navy had had a longstanding plan for Pacific War, which basically uh, called for the Japanese Navy to wait in the Western Pacific for the U.S. fleet to come uh, to them. And Yamamoto thought that that plan had never worked in war games uh, and that he also believed that it was absolutely hopeless for Japan to try to carry on a protracted war against the industrial might of the U.S., so Yamamoto decided that about the only American vulnerability he could identify that he could attempt to uh, attack that might give Japan some chance of success would actually be not anything that was uh, any America's material power, but morale. And he conceived the idea of attacking Pearl Harbor uh, basically to land this enormous psychological blow that we followed by some other blows that would dishearten the American people and get the U.S. to negotiate a peace rapidly before American industrial power could become overwhelming. We know from the Japanese side that he first uh, is recorded to have talked about attacking Pearl Harbor in March of 1940 uh, during a Japanese fleet maneuver where he was impressed with what the Japanese uh, naval air strength uh, was doing at that time. Uh, this was reinforced, although not initiated, by the British attack on the Italian fleet at Toronto in November 1941, the Italian fleet then being in that harbor and was uh, attacked. So that's that's the origins uh, of the idea. Uh, I have to say that uh, there, there, we don't really know with absolute certainty what Yamamoto was thinking. But based on everything I've seen, I think that was basically what he was thinking. He was not thinking that Japan had a great chance of winning the war, but he thought his plan was the only small chance that Japan would have to have a successful outcome to the war. Did the Americans have any clue that this was going to be part of the Japanese strategy? 
Can you tell us about Ambassador Joseph Gru in Tokyo and the letter that he wrote in January 1941? Right. Well, the, the Pearl Harbor attack, of course, became an enormous uh, uh, event in American history, became very controversial, uh, very political. Uh, there was a post-war uh, congressional hearing that went on for quite some time to develop literally 40 volumes of uh, testimony documents. It's an unbelievable trove of material. Um, and one of the revelations that was made at that hearing was that uh, Ambassador Grew had sent a message in January 1941 saying that one of his uh, fellow diplomats, a Peruvian, had talked about a Japanese plan to attack Pearl Harbor. And of course, when that was shown at the, at the hearing, it created a sensation. It's like this was the obvious tip-off. Well, uh, we've, we've looked at it from the U.S. and from the Japanese side. There's no evidence whatsoever that uh, that Peruvian diplomat actually had any solid intelligence. Uh, there was actually a genre of Japanese popular uh, fiction literature that speculated on a Pacific War, and one of the themes in a number of those was an attack on Pearl Harbor. It was an obvious, obvious American base, uh, and also the Philippines. So uh, the whole thing, uh, the, the controversy around Pearl Harbor used to be for probably four decades a really hot issue. It's, it's now uh, deteriorated a good deal in terms of its uh, public uh, uh, awareness. But the, I think having really plunged into it for the first time in doing this current volume, I, I think what you have to understand is that the circumstances in 1941 were very different from earlier on. There were American carrier raids. Uh, uh, one carrier launched a strike against Pearl Harbor in 1932 and again 1938. At the time that happened, the carrier only had the steam from the U.S. West Coast about 2,000 miles to Pearl Harbor. The Japanese attack had to go 4,000 miles across the Pacific. Uh, the number of defending uh, aircraft at Pearl Harbor was minuscule compared to what's there in 1941. So those circumstances entirely changed. Uh, as I work through this problem, I think what you have to understand is the Japanese uh, achieved surprise uh, at what I would describe at three different levels in four different ways. At the top strategic level, it was Yamamoto who was the key figure uh, because both the U.S. and the Japanese navies had contemplated a Pacific War from really the first decade of the uh, 20th century. And they both had reached the same conclusion, which was the, uh, the sensible thing for the Japanese to do would be to wait in the Western Pacific because their, numerically their naval power was, was less than the U.S. and they hoped to uh, trip the U.S. Uh, fleet as it came across the Pacific. And the Japanese had also uh, built their ships to fight in the Western Pacific. So what Yamamoto did was he totally inverted the con concept on both sides of the Pacific about how Pacific War would be fought. And we tend to forget that he actually encountered ferocious resistance within the Imperial Japanese Navy, that he was discarding the sacrosanct uh, plan to fight in the Western Pacific. That's, that's at the biggest level, and that, that's really the single biggest factor in the surprise. Then at the operation, what the military calls the operational level, which is the level between strategy and, and tactics, the Japanese achieved surprise in two different ways. The first of which was that they had never before demonstrated a capability to send a significant part of the Japanese fleet uh, outside the Western Pacific. So sending the carrier striking force with six carriers and all their escorts 4,000 miles across the Pacific was totally unprecedented uh, for them to do. And secondly, they had decided to concentrate their six largest, uh, what are then called fleet carriers, into one uh, uh, formation, one tactical formation. They were all grouped together. And this, too, was an enormous surprise. Uh, the reason for this was that 
and the U.S. Navy side, there was a recognition of the tremendous striking power of carriers, but also recognition that they were highly vulnerable. Um, and consequently, the U.S. Navy was not prepared to concentrate carriers, but keep them dispersed. So in the, as the phrase goes, uh, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. And the Japanese were willing to take that risk. And I would add that basically that gave them success at Pearl Harbor, but six months later at a place called Midway, it led to a disaster when their four carriers in one formation were all, or three of them were knocked out immediately in one American airstrike. Uh, at the tactical level, the Japanese also mastered launching torpedoes in the extremely shallow waters of Pearl Harbor, which was much shallower than Toronto. And that was what inflicted uh, most of the damage on, on the battleships of Pearl Harbor. So you had uh, multiple components of the surprise. It was not simply that they launched an air attack on Pearl Harbor. It was all these factors combined that made this tremendously surprising. And the other thing the Japanese did was deception. And they had two levels of that also. They not only concealed where their carriers really were by total radio silence coming across the Pacific, they also provided a deceptive indication of where uh, they actually weren't. They left behind uh, radio operators who set up radio traffic and distinctive hand keying of, of messages that made it seem like the Japanese carriers were still in the Japanese home waters. And secondly, uh, they had massed their forces for that campaign that they launched against uh, the British colonial territories, the Dutch and the Americans down in the South Pacific. And so it seemed sensible for them to keep their carriers in the home waters to defend that thrust. So you can put all those together, uh, you realize just exactly how the Japanese achieved such surprise. So the last week of peace in the Pacific, can you tell us why the 1st of December is so important, both in Tokyo and in Washington? Well, uh, on December 1st, 1941, the Japanese uh, had basically uh, run out all their diplomatic options that they had set out. They previously uh, established a, a plan that uh, if their uh, diplomatic uh, position was not satisfied by the U.S., uh, by the 1st of December 1941, they would go to war with the U.S. So there was an uh, imperial uh, 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 gathering before the emperor, an imperial conference, uh, that basically was sort of a, a rote ritual because it had already been decided what was going to happen at that point, and that's when they formally decided to, to go to war. Uh, the other thing that happened on that date, which was quite significant, well, actually two things. First of all, uh, a diplomatic message was intercepted by the U.S. and the U.K., uh, indicating that Japanese diplomats in certain key embassies like London and Washington have been ordered to destroy their code machines, which is a, pretty much of a tip-off that the Japanese were intending to embark on hostilities. And the second thing was that the British had been trying for, for months, for many months, to get the U.S. to agree that if uh, Japan attacked in Malaya, uh, that the U.S. would enter the war on the side of the British. President Roosevelt had held off on that, but on the 1st of December, he informed the British ambassador that if Japan were to attack Malaya, the U.S. would uh, would join the war. So that made that day uh, a signal day in the history of 1941, and world history. So let's talk about the 7th of December. Uh, the vanguard of the attack is made up on midget submarines, isn't it? And how and when do they attack? Right. Well, that, that's an interesting facet of the attack because the, the plan was originally built entirely around a strike by these six Japanese carriers using the aircraft that they embarked. Uh, the Japanese submarine service had developed these midget submarines. It was really the first really effective uh, midget submarine, very small, uh, only a two-man crew and two torpedoes. 
uh, and they originally developed them for use in this great uh, showdown battle in the Western Pacific they were thinking of. But these Japanese submar submariners came up with the concept of trying to launch these midget submarines to help attack the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor. And Yamamoto had listened to their fervent pleas and uh, acceded to them. And the Japanese aviators were aghast. They, they believed that there was a terrible threat that this would tip off uh, the uh, coming uh, attack, which, in fact, it did lead to a, a clue that something was going to happen. So these four, five Japanese submarines, each one carrying one of these uh, midget submarines, had arrived off the mouth of Pearl Harbor, and just about midnight, uh, December 6th, 7th, they launched these uh, midget submarines to try to penetrate Pearl Harbor. In the end, only one of the submarines actually got into the harbor, uh, and all, all five of them were sunk. Uh, but the one of them that was detected uh, heading in towards uh, Pearl Harbor uh, led to an encounter with an American destroyer and a report uh, that was the first uh, first tactical warning the Japanese were uh, mounting an attack on Pearl Harbor. So one would presume that there is an established system by which to raise the alarm at Pearl Harbor, obviously. What happens? Uh, right. Well, the first thing uh, you have to understand is that they had been on alert at Pearl Harbor for months, and they'd had a whole series of false alarms. And the fact that they had all these false alarms had instilled this sort of, not, I wouldn't say complacency, but I would say caution, that people were not prepared to leap to conclusions as rapidly as we might think uh, at, at the time. So uh, when, they, when the report uh, comes in and reaches uh, them, it's still not believed at the higher echelons that this necessarily is a valid report of a, of a hostile submarine. And they're still processing that by the time the Japanese planes arrive about 40 or so minutes later. So that, that, that signal uh, warning of the attack uh, doesn't come off. The other thing I have to emphasize, you have to understand that uh, there was, it was fully appreciated the Japanese were probably about to embark on war and commence major operations. But all the solid intelligence that had been developed pointed to an attack in the Western Pacific. Uh, once again, the Philippines, Malaya, and eventually the, the Dutch East Indies or whatever here. So there was clear indication that that's what the Japanese were going to do. That was believed to be consistent with what we always assumed their capabilities were. So there was a sense that they might strike out there, they probably would strike out there, but Pearl Harbor, no, not, not likely at all. And that was very much the attitude in Washington, D.C. So tactically, one of the first things the Japanese really need to do is to cripple the American ability to strike back. So can you tell us about the attacks on the airfields? There's an interesting twist to this, too, because one of the things that Yamamoto, although he was very air-minded uh, and he'd, he'd uh, been instrumental in developing Japanese naval air power, which was both carrier-based and land-based, uh, Yamamoto, again, because he was looking over at is the most important thing was the psychological blow. And he believed that what would most impress the American public in 1941 would be the sinking of a bunch of American battleships because they were the emblem of naval power. They were recognized that way. The carrier at that point was still not recognized as the, as the supreme naval weapon. So he wanted the targeting by the air attack on Pearl Harbor to be at, at battleships. The operational planners who were actually going to scheme up how the attack was actually going to take place were aviators, and they believed that uh, job one was basically to knock out American air power so they couldn't counterattack American uh, uh, Japanese aircraft carriers. So when you, when you work out their plan, you see that they had assigned more aircraft 
to attack various American Army and Navy air facilities uh, around uh, on Oahu than they uh, were going to uh, send against the battleships. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Japanese couldn't go through with Plan A. Could they? Why not? Well, I, I think, yeah, I think what you're referring to as Plan A was they, they, ideally they, they they would like to have sunk the American carriers, which they hoped were going to be in Pearl Harbor. But uh, fortuitously, really, uh, there there were three American carriers with the Pacific Fleet at that time. One, the Saratoga, was on the West Coast undergoing uh, routine uh, overhaul and maintenance. The other two, the Enterprise and the Lexington had been dispatched to carry reinforced air reinforcements, the Enterprise to Wake Island and the Lexington to uh, Midway Island. And uh, so they were out, out of the harbor on that day. Now, very fortuitously, the Enterprise should have been back into Pearl Harbor on the night of December 6th, but because it ran into heavy weather uh, coming back from Wake Island that delayed the refueling of the destroyers, they had to defer the arrival time into the uh, uh, late morning, early afternoon, December 7th. So they're still outside. They're about 200 miles from Pearl Harbor uh, as the attack commences. So when the Japanese uh, launched the attack and their first target was going to be the aircraft carriers, the torpedo planes, when there were no, uh, no aircraft carriers there, they diverted to attack mainly the battleships. So plan B, if you like, is to cause as much damage as possible to Battleship Row. What is Battleship Row? What's there? Um, and how do events play out? Okay, well, uh, although the, the achievement of sending six fleet carriers all the way across the North Pacific for this surprise attack, launching these uh, massive waves, uh, two waves, uh, totaling 350 aircraft, these were all stupendous achievements that were unprecedented in, in naval history at that point. Uh, however, uh, in, in the usual fashion that uh, what is called the friction of war, as that first wave bore in to attack, uh, they had an alternate plan for the attack. The one was if they achieved surprise, they were going to launch their torpedo planes at the American facilities first, followed up by the dive bombers and the level bombers. Uh, that's because the torpedo planes are much more vulnerable. And uh, they thought that if they attacked uh, with surprise, they'd be uh, likely, likely to survive and succeed. Uh, and the second plan was that if surprise was lost, uh, 
then the level bombers and the dive bombers attack first to create diversions and, and diminish the defenses against the torpedo bombers. Well, in, in one of those moments that's so typical of military history, the leader of the attack, a, a gentleman named Fuchida, in the lead plane, uh, he was supposed to fire one red flare uh, if they'd achieved surprise, and uh, that would launch the, uh, the attack initiated by the torpedo bombers. Well, he fires off one flare because surprise is achieved, and a couple groups of his aircraft following him don't begin to behave the way they should have uh, if they were following the surprise attack plan. So after an interval, he fires a second red flare. The second red flare was uh, the signal, for, uh, the two red flares was the signal for surprise lost. And the other element leaders uh, decide that he really means surprise lost. So the Japanese plan collapses into this uh, basically frenzied attack at all levels from all directions uh, simultaneously. Uh, American historian described it as like uh, uh, the American famous race, the Kentucky Derby, right after the horses leave the, leave the, the starting point and they're all gathered together and running together, running amok. So even in Britain, we all know about the Arizona. She's one of the four battleships that were sunk that morning, isn't she? Yes, indeed. Catastrophically. Um, the battleship is lost. There's a, uh, the ship is actually hit by a, a bomb drop from a, a high-level bomber. And the, the bomb is actually a 16.1-inch naval shell armor piercing, which is designed to penetrate the armored decks of a battleship. And the level bombers have to be basically about mm, almost 10,000 feet high to get enough inertial energy to be able to penetrate the armored decks. And unfortunately, um, the Arizona is the one battleship which does sustain exactly that kind of a uh, hit, penetrates the armored decks, sets off the forward magazine, and there's this tremendous catastrophic explosion the explosion uh, kills 1,177 sailors on the ship. Uh, that's uh, an overwhelming majority of the, the men on the ship. Uh, there's only less than 400 survivors, some of whom were ashore. Uh, that actually is about 70% of all the American deaths at Pearl Harbor. Uh, the interesting facet of this uh, is that there was a Navy doctor who had his own personal um, color movie camera and he's on a hospital ship called the Solace, which is about 600 yards away from the Arizona. And when the attack starts, this doctor runs out on the back of the Solace, where he has a visual field towards the Arizona, and he begins triggering his personal camera. And he happens to trigger it just a couple seconds after that bomb penetrates the deck, just a moment before this catastrophic explosion takes place. And it becomes the most famous image of the attack in the U.S. It's been shown many times. But there's this weird twist to this because when the film is originally developed, uh, the, the film is reversed. And so the doctor was looking at the starboard side of the Arizona. And for about three generations of Americans, the version that was shown repeatedly was as though you were looking at the port side of the Arizona. Um, and it's... It's, it's sort of a bizarre twist on the whole thing that this image is really erroneous as to what actually happened. Can you tell us about the damage caused to some of the other battleships? Right. There were three other battleships that were damaged. Um, um, the California was, was hit with two torpedoes. It actually slowly sank. It took three days for the ship to fully uh, sink to the bottom of the harbor. The two others, uh, the, the uh, Oklahoma was catastrophically damaged. Uh, she was hit by about five torpedoes in a few minutes before they really could get ready 
and she rolled over uh, on her port side and eventually capsized, uh, killing over 400 uh, American sailors. The other uh, battleship that was uh, sunk directly as, as a result of the Japanese action uh, was the West Virginia. Uh, she was hit by seven torpedoes. However, uh, some heroic ad hoc action by some of her crew members managed to counterflood enough to keep her from uh, capsizing. She settled and also had tremendous fires, but she did not capsize. And that kept the number of uh, fatalities on the West Virginia down. There was a, a fifth battleship, uh, the Nevada, which was damaged and uh, tried to get underway and get out of the harbor. Uh, but she was further attacked and eventually uh, suffered a, a series of uh, damages. And then there was a mistake made by our damage control people and flooded uh, some compartments that shouldn't have been flooded. So they had to beach the ship uh, to keep her from sinking in the harbor entrance. So you said that the Japanese achieved surprise at three distinct levels in at least four ways. Can you explain this a bit more to us? Right. Well, the, 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 the plan was uh, very carefully thought out. Uh, and it, a lot of the uh, attention on the attack tends to focus on the immediate events of 7th December. But to really appreciate how the Japanese achieved that surprise, you have to understand that that whole uh, concept of moving that carrier striking force across the Pacific, uh, it was itself uh, a tremendous element in the surprise. It, it, like I said, the Japanese planned to fight this big uh, battle in the Western Pacific. And when they built their warships, uh, they did not uh, believe they needed to carry as much fuel to fight in the Western Pacific as the U.S. Navy would need to come all the way across the Pacific. That was one of the biggest differences in the design of uh, both fleets was that the American fleet always had to be very mindful of constructing ships that had tremendous range to get across to the Western Pacific. Japanese, not so much so. And in fact, when the plan was first hatched, it was clear that of the six carriers, only three of them actually had the fuel load that would permit them without refueling to get all the way out across to the Central Pacific, 4,000 miles from, from their base. Uh, the other three, they had to arrange uh, elaborate efforts at uh, underway refueling and, and carrying extra fuel. Same way for their escorts. And what, like I said, the, no one, Japanese never exhibited this characteristic before. Uh, we'd intercepted communications during their fleet maneuvers and had some idea about some of their basic plans, but they had never sent a major part of the fleet remotely that far away. I mean, this is, this is like traversing the entire Atlantic plus a thousand miles and then staging a, a major attack and then planning to get back from it. So that, that alone really was something that seemed to be inconceivable that the Japanese would do. And then like, like I talked about, you have the uh, inversion of the strategic uh, concept of how the war is going to be fought, and then the, the use of all these carriers in one concerted blow. Uh, these things were, uh, if you picked up any one signal of one part of this, you still would not have put it all together to what the Japanese were up to. So let's talk about the casualties. This is the highest number of casualties suffered by American forces on a single day for the entire of the Second World War, isn't it? Right. Well, the, the standard uh, number that's been uh, was, uh, established and, and uh, sustained now for many decades, a total of uh, 2,403 deaths. Of that 2,403 deaths, uh, 68 of them were civilians uh, around uh, Pearl Harbor. Uh, almost all of those, as far as we know, 
were actually killed by errant American and aircraft shells falling back to earth or being improvidently shot from ships in the harbor. Um, so you have uh, what, 2,300 and uh, about uh, 50 or so deaths of uh, military personnel. The great majority of them were, uh, were naval uh, because of the tremendous losses on the ships. Uh, now there is very recently, and since I, I was putting this book together, uh, there's a group that's been working on the D-Day casualties. And uh, they are uh, of the view that there were 2,440 deaths on D-Day. And this has been a very nebulous area for a long time. Uh, the principal reason was because so many of the American servicemen who were uh, not accounted for, were counted as missing on D-Day, uh, it took some time to try to figure out where they were. A lot of them were paratroopers. And there's an enormous problem to me and to another historian I rely on about how you, you figure out if someone was missing and you eventually recover the remains, how do you know that person died on the 6th of June or as a result of injuries sustained on the 6th of June as opposed to several days later? You're talking about hundreds and hundreds of additional uh, uh, casualties where you really, really don't know. And the uh, historian I rely on, Joseph Barkowski, who's spent an enormous amount of time on this, uh, is just very dubious that it's really possible to establish that more Americans died on D-Day than died on, at Pearl Harbor. But what about the Japanese? How many men and machines did they lose? Right. Um, the Japanese lost a total of uh, 29 aircraft, uh, and those aircraft, uh, there were 55 aviators who were killed in, in the attack. They also lost all five of these midget submarines. Uh, each midget submarine had uh, two crew members. And uh, one of the crew members well, became the first Japanese prisoner of war captured by American forces. He was overcome by uh, fumes from the battery uh, of the uh, midget submarine as they were trying to navigate it around uh, the island of Oahu and was captured. Uh, the other nine uh, Japanese uh, sailors on the midget submarines all died. Oh, one thing I found really interesting, the crews of these midget subs, they became cult heroes, didn't they? Yes, it's a very curious aspect about the attack. I mean, it, the... The naval aviators inflict all the damage, but the way the story is presented to the Japanese public, there's this tremendous emphasis on these uh, crewmen of these midget submarines. And there was a very famous uh, image that was made up. Uh, the basic part of it was a shot taken from a Japanese aircraft during the attack. And then they have in sort of a uh, semicircle around the, the photo, they have these little inserts of the facial uh, photos of the nine crewmen. And this becomes uh, this sort of reverent cult image uh, that is uh, admired and, and extolled uh, more than what the naval aviators did. And of course, the curious thing is that, of course, there's only nine of them shown in, in, on that image because they, they've been notified that one of the, one of the Japanese uh, midget submariners has been captured. And of course, that is an absolutely unacceptable uh, uh, disgrace. So, of course, he's not going to be celebrated in that image. I feel sorry for him a little bit. I mean, he does get captured at the end, doesn't he? Yeah, and he's not. Uh, uh, he, it's when you read the story about what what they went through uh, with that uh, midget sub. He was trying his best uh, to uh, make the thing work. 
and they just had they had terrible luck for one thing, and then they had mechanical uh, issues with with the midget sub itself. And uh, when he's captured, he is you know he's he's basically uh, almost totally out of it over here, which was typical of uh, a large fraction of all the Japanese captured by American forces during the uh, war in the, in across the Pacific was many of them were captured when they were simply helpless. Do you think it's fair to say that people have been looking for answers ever since the 7th of December 1941? Uh, well, that, it's, it's gone on. It, it remains, it used to be probably for at least five decades after World War II, if there were two anniversaries that American newspapers are going to regularly uh, note related to the Asian Pacific War, one would be Pearl Harbor and the other one would be uh, Hiroshima. And there was this controversy that went on for decades after Pearl Harbor, multiple publications. Uh, there's, uh, as I like to describe it, uh, in the, this enormous library of uh, publications about war, the Second World War in the U.S., there's this entire annex uh, of conspiracy theories about the Pearl Harbor attack uh, that's gone on. And although that's diminished now, uh, there's the, just a huge literature about this, simply because... Uh, it was, there were all kinds of uh, elements that are linked to this. Uh, the argument that it simply was not conceivable the Japanese achieved such surprise and inflicted such damage. And secondly, that uh, the Roosevelt administration was contriving what was been called the, the back door to war, is that uh, by getting the Japanese to attack Pearl Harbor, that somehow we would get into World War II against not only the Japanese, but also the Germans. That's, that's one of the biggest, I think, uh, defects in the whole theory. Uh, the uh, only evidence we had that Germany was going to enter the war was intercepted messages showing uh, uh, hearsay accounts by some uh, German diplomats that Hitler had said that if Japan gets into war with the U.S., Germany will enter the war. Well, uh, what kind of credence are you going to put into the uh, uh, hearsay verbal assurances of Adolf Hitler about what he's going to do? I mean, <laughs> think, think about that <laughs> for a moment. You see, that. secondly, uh, there was no guarantee that if the Japanese attacked us, that the American public and the American Congress was going to willy-nilly decide to declare war on Germany. In fact, uh, Roosevelt, in his address to the nation uh, on the 8th of December 1942, despite the urgings of some of his subordinates, is quite adamant that he only asked for a declaration of war against Japan. And uh, fortunately, uh, the dilemma is solved by Adolf Hitler deciding to declare war on the U.S. Uh, a couple days later, as he had pledged to do. Uh, so we get into war because Hitler declares war on us, not because basically uh, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor causes us, the U.S., to declare war on, on uh, Germany. Can I just say I love a bit of a conspiracy theory. Um, I get many in my field at work, and um, uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty fun to kind of smash them down a little bit and just sometimes laugh because they're just ridiculous some of these conspiracy theories aren't they some some of them are i i would to be fair i, w I would have to say that one of the uh, one of the problems uh in, in the life of these things is that uh mr roosevelt was so adamant about trying to get the u.s into war with uh, germany uh that uh, there was an episode called the greer incident and and basically this was an american destroyer that was carrying uh some mail and other things to our base in Iceland. And a British plane was tracking a German U-boat and summoned the Greer 
and the Greer tracked the submarine for a period of time. Uh, the British plane eventually dropped some depth bombs at the U-boat, and the U-boat skipper at this point uh, believed that uh, the destroyer that was tracking him was British. And in fact, the ship was one of the same type of the 50 we'd just given to the, the British in 1940. This is in uh, uh, October 1941. And so the U-boat fires at the Greer. And when President Roosevelt uh, initially announces what's happened, he presents this as though the Greer is totally minding its own business when this U-boat, which Roosevelt describes as one of the rattlesnakes of the sea, uh, you know, just lets fly uh, at an American ship. that And then there was testimony by the Chief of Naval Operations that shows what really happened. And there's this, you know, sort of cloud over statements from the administration about what actually had happened. And that, that provides a good deal of impetus to the idea that there was some sort of conspiracy going on. If it's okay with you, let's just finish with the political cost. Can you tell us what's happening in Washington on the 7th and 8th of December? Right. Well, that's, uh, that's an interesting question uh, I, I got into. Um, you know, this is, this, Pearl Harbor is really a huge pivot point in American history. Uh, up to that point, uh, for um, at that point, uh, over 150 years, uh, U.S. foreign policy was basically to uh, stand aloof from uh, what was referred to as foreign entanglements. The one exception had been World War One, and the 20s and 30s, just about all the way across the political spectrum, uh, that uh, episode was regarded as having been a big mistake. Uh, so Pearl Harbor is going to force the U.S. into a, a global role that it enters and has remained in ever since. So from, from that standpoint, uh, it's, it's a huge event, and it's interesting to see how it, it was reported at Pearl Harbor. One of the things I found in my research that was, I thought, particularly uh, remarkable was on the morning of the 7th of December, uh, the New York Times edition that was printed that morning uh, carried a headline uh, that read, uh, Navy is superior, says Knox. Now, Frank Knox was the U.S. Uh, Secretary of the Navy, and he just released a report. Uh, and the juxtaposition of that headline in the attack on Pearl Harbor seems bizarre, to say the least. Uh, the news came as a tremendous shock uh, to the U.S. Uh, when Roosevelt first heard it, he was with one of his principal advisors, Harry Hopkins. And Hopkins simply simply couldn't believe it. Uh, but FDR uh, believed that the sort of thing the Japanese might do. They had a history of attacking, uh, surprise attacks or whatever here. Uh, and it's, it's a very interesting process as it rolls across the country. Um, a lot of people don't even know where Pearl Harbor is. Even people who purported to be well-informed at that point did not know where Pearl Harbor was. So it, it's, a, it's a tremendous story in itself, and I, I try to cover that in my book. So Time magazine wrote, we quote, But the war came as a great relief, like a reverse earthquake, that in one terrible jerk shook everything disjointed distorted askew back into place japanese bombs had finally brought national unity to the US. so where the japanese sought to destroy america's war prospects they made her more resolved didn't they yeah that's the, that's the supreme uh, irony in terms of from the japanese perspective uh, whatever operational or tactical success they achieved it was from a strategic standpoint a catastrophe uh the u.s it remained very ambivalent about getting into the war into uh, late 1941. Now, when I say ambivalent, they were not ambivalent about Hitler, or the Nazis, uh, very much uh, opposed to that. There was very strong op- 
opposition to the Japanese. But the basic attitude of the, the bulk of the Americans was, uh, if the war comes to us, we'll, we'll go to war, but we're not going to initiate war ourselves. And the Japanese basically uh, united the country in the notion that they were going to strike back furiously and completely and absolutely crush Imperial Japan as a result of the attack on Pearl Harbor. So from the standpoint of what uh, Yamamoto was attempting to achieve, uh, instead of crushing American will, uh, he in fact stoked American resolve to see the war through to the absolute annihilation of Imperial Japan. That was amazing. Thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about Pearl Harbor, how we got to Pearl Harbor, some of the tactics, um, some of the ships, about some of the ships who were destroyed and dispelling some conspiracy theories because we always <laughs> love to dispel a conspiracy theory. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me. Join us tomorrow when Tim Whitmarsh will be with us to talk about the ancient Greeks and identity. This was so interesting. So what do we mean when we say ancient Greece and how did they view themselves? How did citizenship work? How did they view others as well? It's great to find out what they thought of the Romans. So don't miss that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.